0: Let's take our Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. If you have it with you, I would invite you to listen along as I read. And keeping this chapter in view, as we read the paragraph for our study today, I'm going to read from the first four verses and then verses 14 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and therefore every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. And verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And the Lord added blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated, children who are interested, and families who choose to do, you can head off to children's church. I am uh, I'm eager to preach this paragraph at the end of chapter 2. As I do, I would invite you to put this placeholder in your hearing, to see Christ like us, for us, with us. See Christ like us, for us, with us. Christ alone is our helper because he is like us, for us, and with us. It might sound, as we read this chapter, like the warning coming from the author is, don't go back into angel worship. It might sound like that. He talks a lot about angels for almost two chapters. We've been discussing the value, the worth of Christ over that of angels. But in fact, as I said when I preached from chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 a month ago, I want to remind you that when he refers to angels, he's not warning us not to go back to the worship of angels, but rather to not return to the message that was first delivered by angels, that is, the law. So he's warning them, don't go back into the Mosaic law-keeping, but rather hear the good news first delivered by the Lord. Don't go back into transgression, retribution, retribution, Economy, but rather be invited into the good news of Jesus Christ. Then the author states it positively. So so first he says, don't go back into the economy where when you did bad, you got punished. Don't go back, but rather consider, pay much closer attention to, and then he segues in, to the world to come. Pay much closer attention to, to the world to come. This this is imperative, in my opinion, that all of our Christian joys, all of our Christian perseverance, receives a sort of a buttress, a, a, a fortification in thinking about what is coming for us. I think it's very important that we pay much closer attention to the world that is to come. You see, angels delivered a law. The law is this. Sinners are subject to its rule. That's the law. Paul says, I would not have known sin had it not been for the law. The law became a tutor to me, me, telling me that I needed a Savior. The message from angels is that sinners are subject to the rule and standard of righteousness. And then there's a good news that the Lord delivered to us. And that is that all of his children will someday again rule the world. So don't go back into the message of being ruled by the law but rather look forward to the world to come of which you will be rulers. The question then for us today is what causes our rule to be made bankrupt? As I preach to the children of God, mostly, not entirely, but as I speak to the children of God, what is it, that takes the legs out from our ruling this world as it is now? The answer is sin. It is both the sin in us and the sin that has subjected this world to futility unwillingly. That's from Romans 9. Sin. The very thing we are made to do, we are currently incapable of doing. in our own impairment with sin and in the sin that infects this creation. Therefore, if we are to be helped, then Christ Jesus will lead brothers and sisters to an inheritance known as glory or the garden redeemed. In Christ, We, the people of God, inherit the world. Listen to Galatians 6 just quickly. The reason I want to say this in the introduction is because all that is promised to us must first be understood in order to be appreciated. If we are to see Christ as our good help, then we should understand what we need. What we need is to be restored to the very Function for which we were created. Function. Listen to Galatians 6 14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me. The world has been made as though dead to me by Christ. For, listen, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but new creation. As for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, the Israel of God. This future rule or inheritance is that which I made passionate plea for last week. I would would invite you again. Don't sell your birthright for porridge. Our inheritance of things to come is certain and amazing. As you sit here today, you cannot yet see. But can you see? You cannot yet see All the things that seem so feral subject to Jesus Christ. But can you see Christ? That's the point of the paragraph we're going to study. If in fact you can see the Christ, then you can see clearly what's coming. Our future reign and guaranteed inheritance Is as certain as his future reign and guaranteed inheritance. Do you you sit here today and wonder? I wonder if Jesus will someday be Lord over everything. I wonder if someday his kingdom will come to earth and his rule will be on earth as it is in his throne room. I hope that you say, I don't wonder that. I'm convinced. I would invite you then, as we are called children of God and brothers and sisters with the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, I would invite you then not only to have no doubts about his future reign and rule, I would invite you to have no doubts about our future reign and rule. Adam and Eve placed in the garden. Subjugate it. Rule over it. Order it. Steward it. Worship me by the way you tend to it. People in bondage. Come out. Come out from slavery. Come to this place I have prepared for you. Oh, they spoke so fondly. The milk and honey flowing. The mountains. The valleys. It was adored. Come to this place. Steward it. Rule in it. And we are sitting here today invited to a future reign, a future rule. So, in summary, this paragraph gives us what verse 3 had called us to. Pay closer attention to a great salvation. Such a great salvation. And then the author's going to take this concluding paragraph and point out, as I can perceive, five paradoxes, five things that in the incarnation of Christ become paradox as Jesus does spectacular things on our behalf as our helper. So let me pray and then walk through those five paradoxes. Father God, I ask that You would lead us by Your Spirit. We, we handle this Word. We, we hold it in our hands. We desire to be good stewards, to be humble recipients of Your Spirit's teaching. And so, Father, we pray that You would cause us to be attentive to it, that You would, Lord, in Your rule over me, cause me to speak it clearly and correctly. Father, I pray that we would be shaped by the truth of Christ, His reign, And our place in Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. By, first paradox, by His incarnate life, death is defeated. By living, dying loses. By living, dying loses. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same thing that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Because we are living in flesh and blood, he, our helper, our Messiah, partook of that same thing. So that by his dying, so he lives first, so that he may die, he would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The reason that Christ came into the world as a man is described here with two verbs, destroying and delivering. First, Jesus would destroy the power of a tyrant who is holding mankind in slavery, namely the devil. And the object of his slavery is our fear of death. And from that, second verb, Christ comes to deliver not only to destroy what is evil, but to rescue us to our eternal glory. The serpent crusher destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. What is the power of Satan over us today? It is described in this context as a fear of death. Fear of death is something that we face every day. Now, you probably don't always recognize it as a fear of death. But in fact, almost everything, almost everything we struggle with has its root in our fear of dying. So I don't maybe understand what you mean. Let me use greed as an example. If you are greedy, you want more, and you don't want to give anything away, you need the next thing, that comes from your fear of dying. Well, my life is shortened. I better get everything that I can and enjoy everything now because my life will someday be over. We lose contentment when we are compelled by our fear of death. How much of our busyness, our frenzy, our entertainment is mainly an attempt to divert our attention from the shadow of death cast across our lives? how much of everything we do the way we order our life is really about our fear of dying death is not merely an event that awaits us it is a power that rules us it is described here as sort of like the taskmasters in egypt sure pharaoh was the one that ordered the taskmaster But if you were to ask a Jewish slave in Egypt, what is your daily problem? He would say, the taskmaster. Well, who orders the taskmaster? Well, Pharaoh. And I would would use that to illustrate. What is your daily trouble? Death. And who orders your trouble? The devil. Death is not merely an event that awaits us, but a power that rules us. Tom Schreiner writes this quote. Death tarnishes all of our achievements and denies our souls peace and contentment. You ever thought about, Gary prayed today. He prayed for our country, which is biblically based. prayed for my marriage which is biblically based so you were driven by scripture to pray for those two things and i thought about that as i prayed with you i thought how much of those two things are ruined in my perception because i'm afraid of dying i'm afraid of dying therefore oh i really deserve a better country can it just be better why do things have to be so broken does sin have to get in the way of what i could be enjoying in my community my marriage why do i'm going to flip that question why does my wife have to put up with all these annoying imperfections i'm i'm not a really pleasing spouse i've got so many negative idiosyncrasies so many weird things Why should she have to put up with that? She only gets so long to live. Doesn't she deserve something more enjoyable? The question is absolutely. But that's only stated in the context of fearing death. Because this light momentary affliction that she lives with is not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to come. So when I turn my attention away from she's not going to live forever and this is not a great blessing. So then... She'll just die. Death reigns. But instead we say, he's leading sons to glory. This, this is not your, your best life now. This is not. I remember once, if I could just quickly give an illustration. I was sitting in a locker room. One of our boys had gotten in trouble for drinking. He, had, he, had, he was drinking alcohol. And so he was suspended. I think he was a five-game suspension for drinking alcohol. And I remember his dad wanted to address the team, which I don't think is a great idea. I mean, he's got some other things he needs to probably deal with, but he wanted to come in and address the team. And so we said, okay, okay, okay. So he came in and he wanted to address the team. And I remember specifically him saying, this is almost 20 years ago, and I remember specifically him saying, boys, these are the best years of your life. Don't ruin them by being foolish. And I went. it's not true and and we can broaden it and we can broaden it more and as we sit here in this room we broaden it all the way to glory the wage of our sin is death friends the wage of our sin is death we are dying sin is not just something that we do Listen closely. Sin is a categorical distinction. Sin isn't something we do less of or more of. You might might think of your sin in terms of economic pluses and minuses. A bear market or a bull market. You might think of sin that way. It's not that way at all. It's categorical. You're either sinner or you're holy. So the term sinner is meant to distinguish us from God who is holy. And Jesus was promised in Genesis 3.15 to be the one who would crush death on our behalf. So the first oxymoron is that by his flesh and blood living, he crushes death. Okay? Second paradox. Second paradox is this. Slaves are free. Slaves are free. Second purpose of Jesus coming. Remember, the first one is to defeat. Second one is to deliver. That's in verse fifteen. Let's look. And so we're continuing the thought: deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. All those who, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong slavery. The second purpose of Jesus becoming human being is explained here. He becomes a man to dethrone the devil. He becomes a man to deliver those who are slaves. Josh shared with us two weeks ago from the cross references, if you want to look back up to verse 6. So it has been testified, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? He made him to be a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is a quote from Psalm 8. Psalm 8. It proclaims that human beings are made to rule creation. Listen as I read from Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you're mindful of him? That's the cross-reference the author uses. What is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand and put all things under his feet. Instead of our created purpose to rule... In sin, we are being ruled over. Sin means God's image bearers. Um, If I may may invoke memory, do you recall, uh, I don't know how long ago, quite a while, we talked about what does it mean that we are created in the image of God? Being created in the image of God does not mean that God has Ten fingers and toes, and God has a nose and eyes and a receding hairline. That is not what God looks like. But in fact, being created in the image of God means that we have a vocational likeness with Him. We are created to operate in similar function. That is, authority and rule. But in sin, we forfeit that identity. Sin means that humans do not reign, but are reigned over by this foreign power, death. That reign over us is obvious in our fearing. Do you feel like you're fearing right now? Right now, do you feel afraid? To be reigned over by fear is to be afraid of anything other than God. Simply put, I'm, I don't, I'm not taking any medication for my fear. I don't feel like it's a problem. If you are afraid of anything other than God, you have a fear problem. Phillips wrote this quote. In every moment of happiness, death is a dark shadow, reminding us that our joy will be short-lived. We are in bondage, slavery, to fear of death. However, Jesus is bringing many sons to glory. So, to restore the rule of man over creation, death must be defeated. And who will defeat such a death? Well, the answer is the true human being. I could invite you just one more time. I, I know I've said this before. I would invite you one more time to not perceive any of us as human beings. None of us as human beings. That's an appropriate face. None of us as human beings. I would invite you to perceive all of us in Christ as human becoming. But that we would confess there has only ever been one flesh and blood who is not moving toward perfection, but had already arrived at perfection, is therefore being human. And that is Jesus. The true human being must help us if we are to be brought from this slavery to glory. Hence, Jesus had to become human to destroy death. And becoming human, it was obvious he had power over creation, wasn't it? So, I, I want to walk you back into a point of clarification from the middle of Hebrews 2. We are looking forward to all things being subject. We are looking forward to. The question is who do we anticipate these created things being subject to? That's a question. Maybe you say, We look forward to a day when all these things are subject to Jesus. That's true. However, we don't necessarily look forward to that day. That day already happened. What was not subject to Jesus? Was a boy's lunch not subject to Jesus? Was a storm not subject to Jesus? Was water that needed to become wine not subject to Jesus? Was Lazarus' death not subject to Jesus? All things were under his feet. So what are we looking forward to? What is being delivered? Us. Our return to glory in this creation by being freed from the slavery to sin by the death of the man, Jesus Christ. He endured death for us on our behalf. Death would only die through the death of a true human being. Through the death of the human. The children of God are led to glory. The death they deserve, he took upon himself so that they are now free from the fear of death that haunts human existence. As I move away from that section talking about slavery, I only want to share with you pastorally, prayerfully identify the myriad of of examples of your fear of death in your living. So, so I would invite you to do this. Pray this way. God, search my heart and see if there be this wicked way in me. Just that. Am I living like a child of God who is being brought to glory, or am I living like a slave in Egypt subject to my fear of death? Here's the thing. I don't mean... You know that recently we've walked with a brother and a sister in just the last couple months who heard a medical diagnosis that was, that was of, of grave concern. Like, oh, that's serious. That's life-threatening diagnosis. But I'm not calling you to say when the time comes, I'll face my mortal end head-on with faith. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not doing that. It's, it's like... It's like, how many of you husbands would say, I would take a bullet for my wife? Well, you would. You would. In those big, catastrophic, life-changing events, you say, I'll, I'll show up. And when it comes time for you to say, I am stepping from this life into the next by faith, you probably will do that. But, but I'm talking about, right now, in, in the myriad of little things... Lord, search my heart, see if there be a wicked way in me. Am I I living with a discontentment, an anxiety, a fear, a frustration, a disgust? A defeat? Like I'm subject to death? Or like I'm a child delivered to glory? He brings many sons to glory. So, Moving away from that paradox, number three. So we have in living, there's death. And we have in slavery, there's freedom. And now we have the offspring of Abraham are helped, but not the offspring of Adam. The offspring of Abraham get help, but not the offspring of Adam. It's verse 16. Let's look at it. For surely it is not angels that he helps. O- okay. Okay. Hey, by the way, that's true. Um, What do angels think about the way that they're measured appropriate before God? Grace or law? What do angels think? The Bible tells us in Ephesians that angels look at the grace of God toward us and they marvel. They're like, what? We've never heard of such a thing. Angels do not operate in heaven before God in the economy of grace or mercy. But law so the helper doesn't come to help the angel but he helps the offspring of Abraham that's interesting isn't it? that he doesn't say he helps the offspring of Adam he helps the offspring of Abraham he himself is the second Adam but he helps the offspring of Abraham rule over the world has not been promised to angels but to humans and by the way I would suggest that that is a point of contention in the fall of Satan. A point of contention. And you say, what? how did Satan fall? Who was going to rule over this amazing creation God had done? Man, not angels. Therefore, man, if he is to rule, needs Christ's help. And we see this. Look at verse 16. There's a hinna clause, a four. Four, this tells us why Jesus became human and died in our place. The author doesn't speak of human beings in general, but rather the release from the tyranny of death and the the restored rule is limited to those who are the offspring of Abraham. You say, well, Pastor, I think you're about to tell us what the offspring of Abraham is. I'm going to. But first, let me tell you what the Greek word is. Offspring of Abraham, two Greek words. I can't make it any more vivid than this. It is Greek, spermatos abraham. Yeah, you don't have to know a lot of Greek to see the word picture. So, the author of Hebrews is standing in front of, presumably, a a Jewish Christian and saying, don't depart the Messiah to go back to Judaism for all the children of Abraham are being helped. Right? Did you feel that? Did you just go, that's a bad argument? For all the descendants, the spermatas of Abraham are being helped, restored to glory. Now, either the Spirit turned around while the author was penning this verse, or we need to more clearly understand from the New Testament who are the descendants of Abraham. As I thought about that, I sat at my desk and I thought about that. I thought about how many of you have probably not been with us as we've walked through books like Romans very thoroughly. So let me clarify so that you understand who these offspring of Abraham are. Paul, a Jewish man himself, is an apostle who penned Romans 4, 9. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteous. The purpose of that faith, righteousness, in Abraham is to make him the father, the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Without receiving the right of admission into the Jewish people. Abraham is the father of all who believe. So that righteousness would be counted to them. And to make him the father of those who are not merely circumcised. He's not just an ethnic father but the father of those who walk in the footsteps of faith. Galatians chapter 3 Paul makes the point clear again in verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the, of Jew and Gentile, it is the sons of faith who are the sons of or that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture for foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall the nations be blessed. The blessing of Abraham is the Savior. In verse 16, we see the word help. You see it? He does not help the angels, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the word helps. I like help. I like help. I like those people who are in the nursery right now, helping us, in children's church, helping us. I like the elders who help me. I like the deacons who help and serve the whole congregation. I like help. What is help here? In verse 15, we see a vivid description of how the Messiah helps. It is the word deliver in verse 15. The deliver helps. To deliver, according to that word, is to take hold of and rescue out of peril. Jesus reaches down into our despair and sin, into our certain demise, and takes hold of us. That's his help. He rescues us. It is not the angel's. It is those children who, by faith, are the offspring of Abraham who he helps. Rule over the world will not be given to those who are the children of Adam, but to those who are the children of Abraham. This explains, this brings together the chapter. See it, verse 10. They are described as sons brought to glory. Verse 11, they are described as those being sanctified. Verse 11 and 12, those who are the brothers, sisters of Jesus. Verse 13, the children that God has given to Christ. These are those being restored through his death, freed from slavery to rule. Not all of Adam's, but those rule over creation i wonder i I try to imagine how you might think about your future rule over all created things there are some false religions that lead us to go oh wait is that like what they teach just because a false religion might stumble onto a true expression doesn't make that expression false or something we should forsake right I wonder, though, how you think about it. And one thing I would like to say before I leave this paradox is you should be a ruler in training. Listen to what Paul said about that just as I close this section. 1 Corinthians 6.2. Do you know that the saints are going to judge the world? Do you know that the sons led to glory are someday going to be overseers of the world? Then he says this. And if overseers of the world... Then why is the world to judge you? Are you incompetent to discern trivial issues? So what that means is if two brothers or two sisters decide we have a conflict, we should go to a civil magistrate and have them settle it. Paul steps in and goes, what what are you thinking? Why can't you start behaving like you're going to be? You see that? You're telling me two people who are going to judge the world have to go to a civil judge to get things straightened out? So my my invitation for you is to see that yes, the sons of Abraham are being restored to their place over creation as stewards before God to His glory. So I, I would invite you to be careful how you express that coming reality in your present function. The fourth... The fourth paradox. The divine creator serves, verse 17. The humanity of Jesus qualifies him to serve as our priest, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Full humanity, every respect. Jesus, we're coming up on the advent. We're a little more than a month away from our celebration of the advent of Jesus Christ. The church has so much cause for celebration. I hope that you love celebrating the advent of Christ. I don't hope that you love it so that you start decorating for it before Thanksgiving, but I do hope that you love it. (laughs) Made like us in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This is the first of 17 references to a high priest in the book of Hebrews. The first of 17 references to a high priest. Hebrews makes it clear that Jesus is a different type of high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, we're going to hear that he's a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Ooh, that's going to be impressive. And we learn from what we know here in the whole book of Hebrews and what we read in the good news of Jesus Christ that he is not only a high priest different than other high priests, he's a high priest who is not only the priest but the sacrifice. That's extraordinary priesthood. No priest in the Old Testament ever imagined that he would be called upon to be both the priest and the sacrifice. In offering himself this way, though, Jesus, the Christ, made propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. In verse 17, the high priest, made like us, goes in our place, puts death to death, and therefore made propitiation. Propitiation means to extinguish wrath, to propitiate, to extinguish wrath. Do you realize that here in verse 17, we are finally told what we probably already knew why it would be appropriate for some to fear death every day? We're finally told in verse 17 why it's completely appropriate for some to live in the dread of dying all the time. Because ours is a God who is just and angry and hates sinners. Therefore, if you stand apart from the atonement of Christ as an object of God's wrath, as an object of God's wrath, you should fear death. I I, I put a note, Leviticus 10. Maybe you know what Leviticus 10 is. Leviticus 10 the priests offer strange fire in their worship. And God strikes them dead. Our God is holy. His, his righteousness cannot be suspended. Therefore, his wrath is a real and present danger to those apart from Christ. So fear of death is appropriate. But you see, in stating it that way, in stating that way, like your your neighbor, if I may proverbially make a proverbial reference to your neighbor, your neighbor, whose life motto is get all I can, can all I get, and burn the rest, is doing something completely Normal, predictable, and consistent. Through the fear of death. What, what do people like Paul or Solomon say? If our hope is in this life only, then we are either most miserable or we ought to change the way we function. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But Jesus made propitiation, extinguished the wrath of God that was toward us. The author has argued that humans are afraid of death. And here he says why. Because the wrath of God and the devil reigns with that fear of death as an accuser of man. When Jesus died... He does not appease the devil. He appeases the wrath of God. Jesus, the Savior, the one by whom all things exist, becomes servant. What a beautiful paradox of the gospel. Philippians 2 You should have this mind in you, which was in Christ, who took on the form of a servant, even unto death humbled himself to the point of dying on the cross, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name and led his son to glory. Last paradox. Suffering becomes helping. Suffering becomes helping. Jesus' priestly qualifications are presented here. He is an incarnate Savior in our place. He must be made in every way like man. Isaiah 53 said he would be. A man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Here's what I want you to understand. His solidarity, his brotherhood with human beings is not abstract theory. Jesus didn't take on the title of man, but became fashioned as man. Hughes says, Jesus... Resistance of all temptation demonstrates that he knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we, who have not withstood it to the end, cannot understand. Here's what I mean. When we talk about him being with us, knowing our suffering, I want you to understand that in that sense, he is more human than we will ever be. What happens to us when we face temptation? What happens to us when we face temptation? Very often we succumb to it. Sometimes we resist it. Sometimes we're protected from it. Jesus never succumbed to temptation. And Jesus never had to have temptation delivered from him. He was more acquainted with the human inadequacies... in in the presence of sin than we'll ever be. He's not only man, he's in fact more human, more acquainted with our infirmity than we will ever be. So the help, in verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted further than we will be, further suffering down the road than we would ever go. He is able to help those who are being tempted because he suffered. The suffering here, and therefore the help, in this context, must have atonement in view. So in the vein of his suffering unto death, let's think about the Garden of Gethsemane. We see an extraordinary suffering under the weight of sin in the Garden of Gethsemane. Temptation. Temptation of the divine to face death. And not just any death. The divine punishment of the Father on the Son. In the Garden... Jesus was faced with a temptation that has no parallel, no match. And if you've read the good news of our Jesus, you know how the temptation went. He said, in humanity, if there's any way, let this pass. And concluded, in deity, over his humanity, in perfect Humanity, nevertheless, your will be done. Because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because he did face the full assault of temptation without succumbing, he then is our helper, and there is no other. Jesus' death is the means by which the rule of human beings over this world is to be restored. The full humanity of Jesus leaps off the pages of this chapter. Jesus lived a flesh and blood life. He knew the agony of temptation, the pain of suffering. Jesus is not just our brother. Jesus is our older brother. His victory over death and sin means that we have conquered death and sin through him. C.S. Lewis summarized it this way. The son of God became man to enable man to become the son of God. So the question is being asked, are you going to leave the Christian faith? Are you going to go back into a system where when you do bad, you get punished? Or are you going to think much more about what you first heard from the Lord? That is the world that is to come. Are you going to see that in Christ, the promise that we will inherit heaven and earth is amen in Christ? Will you see Christ like us, for us, with us, like us in incarnate incarnate birth, for us in death, with us in our suffering? By his true son, the human being, our elder brother. We are children of God. We inherit his creation where we will fully enjoy him forever. We are heading toward glory. Don't shipwreck your faith now. We are heading toward glory. And First John 3, 2, beloved, we are God's children right now. What we will be has not yet appeared. What it means to be the child of God hasn't fully been experienced. Like when you're back in the garden and you're directing a herd of deer to turn one way or another way, when, when you're putting his created beauty on display in front of you, when you're calling monarch butterflies to come to the small garden And enjoy time with your beloved friends and family. That has not yet appeared. I haven't experienced that yet. But we are children of God now. And even though that has not appeared, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And I'm I'm glad to say, friend. Don't sell your birthright for any porridge. Let's pray. Father, your word is, as our brother said, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We sit here in this room with very real needs, needs of falling in our discouragement, our, our faith to falter, doubts to dominate us fear to insist that this life owes us more and then your word steps in and christ is illuminated and we are invited to think much more about the world to come we do walk by faith we've not seen it from where we sit father we can't even see the way in which christ is ruling much less how our condition could be called ruling. But we are looking forward to a day when He returns and we will see that all of the promises were in fact yes and amen in our Savior Jesus Christ. In His name, this wonderful, awesome name we pray. Amen.